we are, as promised, going to begin chapter 2 this evening of our confession. As I mentioned uh, before, we're not going through all the details of chapter 1 because we've spent the last several months discussing um, a lot of what's contained in there. So um, perhaps once we get through the confession, um, we may go back and hit 1 because it'll be a while. And so... It'll be a good time to uh, be refreshed on those things. But uh, we are going to start on chapter 2 this evening. So what I want to do to start is um, we're going to read paragraph 1 of chapter 2, and then I'm going to give us a breakdown of how the chapter is written and give us a little bit of um, an overview, and then we will deal specifically with only one statement from the paragraph um, and you'll see why we're going to be breaking it down as we are, as we move ahead. So let's begin by reading uh, paragraph 1 of chapter 2. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, chapter 2 of our confession uh, is divided into three paragraphs, and it deals with what's commonly referred to as the doctrine of God. Um, that seems like a very broad um, title theologically, and it is, but uh, really, as we talk about the doctrine of God, it's referring to very specific things about God. Um, so the first chapter that we will begin looking at this evening is going to deal with God's nature and his attributes. So we saw these words subsistence. Um, We're going to deal with his essence and his nature as God. Uh, The second paragraph deals with God's relation to his creation. So how he relates to man and all of creation. And then in the third paragraph, we will see the triunity of God. This is the paragraph that deals with God's Trinitarian nature. Now, before we uh, deal with the specific doctrine in paragraph one that we're going to look at tonight, I wanted to outline um, a few things. Uh, first being the writers, what the writers of the confession were doing as they were writing this chapter, uh, one of which we looked at in detail when we met uh, last time. So three things that um, 
I want to draw attention to as we read this, and if you remember last time we talked about the importance of setting everything in the confession within its historical context, and some of uh, what we're going to look at now is dealing with that. The first thing that we see is that the writers were rooting their understanding of the doctrine of God as derived from Scripture in the ancient creeds of the church. Um, identifying with what Christians have understood about God throughout, uh, throughout time, throughout the history of the church. Of particular note, listen to the first lines of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed uh, from the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325, says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Also, the Apostles' Creed, sometime around 390 A.D., both of these uh, statements from the 4th century. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So we see these statements uh, very similar to the very first line in paragraph 1 of chapter 2. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. Additionally, the following paragraphs of chapter 2 agree with all of the ancient creeds, particularly with regard to the Trinitarian nature of God. So that's the first thing. We see that the writers of the Confession are seeking to make very clear um, their unity with what the church has always believed. Secondly, like the ancient creeds, the writers of the Confession were concerned with being identified not only with what they do believe, but also identifying what they are opposed to, specifically with regard to heresies that were in existence at the time. And we're going to see this all throughout the Confession, either explicitly or implied, and sometimes even dealing with issues of heresy that uh, may not have been present at the time but are now, but the Confession speaks directly to them. Um, So in chapter 2, specifically, we're going to see a denial of polytheism. Um, Here's one of those ones that uh, that they wouldn't have thought of at the time, probably, uh, but that uh, was not intended, but certainly speaks to uh, the reality of deism and what was, what's thought in the uh, worldview of deism. Uh, it deals with um, very directly atheism. Um, it's a rejection of uh, chapter 3, rejects the Arian heresy. Um, this is uh, the heresy that the Jehovah's Witnesses hold to today, uh, the idea that Jesus was created by God the Father. Uh, that Jesus, uh, because the scriptures say he was the firstborn of all creation, uh, they believe that Jesus was created by God. He was uh, born from God, but that he is not um, God uh, in the same sense as the Father. Um, also deals directly with um, the heresy of Sabellianism, which is uh, also known as modalism or uh, you see this uh, modern day as uh, in churches that identify as oneness or holiness churches. Um, this is a heresy that that denies the trinitarian nature of God, that God does exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but He is only one at a time. He is one of the modes of the Trinity. So He's either the Father, either the Son, or either the Holy Spirit. So, in essence, when Jesus was walking the earth, heaven was empty. Um, so. Uh, that's, uh, that is a, a heresy that is alive and well today. Um, oneness and holiness churches are expanding. They're, um, they're going out into the nations. Um, and they have some very popular teachers, probably the most popular being T.D. Jakes. 
Um, so we see a denial of heresy. Um, and again, it's not going to identify them by name, but very clearly attacking these heresies that were being taught in the church. And we'll see that uh, as we move along. And third, as discussed last time, uh, the writers of confession sought to show substantial unity with other believers at the time, particularly those holding to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists. So the difference between the confessions in these paragraphs of this chapter, and I'll be sure as we move along in the confession to point out where there are substantial differences, but the ones in this chapter are very minor. They're not issues of disagreement among those who hold to the different confessions. A lot of them are uh, maybe a different word or a grammatical choice was used, but nothing uh, dealing theologically um, uh, indifferent. So... Uh, those three things we see being uh, identified here in the in the second chapter. Now, dealing specifically with the first paragraph, and having just read it, I think you can see why, but I assume we'll be in this paragraph for several weeks. Um, but as we move along, as a help to us, um, I was reading... Um, from pastors Sam Waldron and Greg Nichols. They've pointed out a very helpful way for us to read the paragraphs of the confession in their distinct parts that we can understand the individual propositions of each paragraph while simultaneously seeing them as a part of the unified whole. So here's what I mean by that. It's important as we read to note where the writers have placed semicolons. Now, I think a lot of people today don't even know how to use a semicolon, uh, but they are f- right. Yeah, no, yeah. There's not a lot of periods, uh, and and in fact, if you read a lot of writing from the Reformational time period, there's not a lot of periods. There's a lot of semicolons and commas, and um, but these semicolons are very important because they help us to identify the sections, if you will. Uh, throughout each paragraph. In other words, we can derive an outline of sorts of each paragraph by using each semicolon as a, as a marker. It identifies there's a new uh, proposition coming. Um, it's being made and it can stand alone. It can stand on its own doctrinally. Now, it is part of the unified whole in terms of the doctrine of God, but it in and of itself is a statement that can be, um, can be looked at and identified. Um, something will be very clear to you beginning tonight is that each of these statements are pregnant with theological truth. Um, It can be expanded. It can be expounded on at great length. The confession, remember, is simply giving us a summary statement of these truths that direct us uh, in the study of the Bible. Uh, Volumes upon volumes upon volumes of books have been written on almost every doctrinal nuance that we're going to cover through the confession of faith. Uh, So this is why it will take us some time to do a really good, thorough study of the confession of faith. We want to exposit. We want to uh, explain all the various doctrines in greater detail than what we can simply read in the confession. Um, But we understand that nearly everything that we're going to discuss in here even, we're going to spend a lot of time on these things, but even in our discussion here, we're only going slightly below the surface of what could be covered. And I I think if a man wanted to uh, spend his entire life 
only studying uh, the nuances of the various doctrines outlined in our confession of faith, um, he would be a very biblical scholar like no other. There's so much contained here uh, that we want to look at. So we're going to take our time. We're going to move slowly. Uh, but even still, um, we can uh, we could spend the next 30 years going through this and still only get uh, barely under the surface. So let's get more specific and divide up paragraph one, and then we will look at the first statement of the paragraph. If we use the semicolons as dividers, and I've tried on that sheet I gave you, if you'll notice uh, within the paragraph, I put the numbers one through eight. Those are my additions uh, to help us as we talk about them. There are eight distinct uh, propositions within this paragraph. But if we look more carefully, we can see within those eight sections of the paragraph, there are five adjectives or relative uh, clauses that describe the subject who is God. So... Look with me, the first statement which we will be dealing with in detail is identifying the subject, namely the Lord our God. We see that right out of the chute. Now, following this identification, there are five statements that use the words whose or who. Two of the statements describe the nature or the character or the essence of God, while the other three describe the attributes of Of that nature. In other words, there are two main statements that define what God is, and numbered there is statement number two and statements three and four. So if you combine three and four, that makes one, and two is another standalone. And as a result of what He is, there are three other statements that define who God is. Statement five, six as one, and then seven as one, and eight as one. And I think as we move along, you'll understand that a little bit better. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be particularly interested in looking at the first statement of paragraph one, which identifies the subject. This is why I told you before this is going to take us a very long time. Here's our focus of study tonight. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. That's it. Now, this statement deals with the singularity or the oneness of God. Not oneness in the uh, way that the um, modalist um, heresy believes, but the oneness being that God is one. He is a singular God. Another way to say it, perhaps more plain English suited to our vocabularies. And if, um, Russ, you have your copy there, hold that up. Yeah. This, this copy of the confession, uh, it's called A Faith to Confess. I'll have a few of those available along with other copies of the confession if you don't have one. I ordered them a month ago. I called today. They should be here within a week or two. But um, I'll get some of these as well. This is a, a reworking of the confession in modern English. So it's the same thing. Someone just went through and updated some of the language to be more helpful to us. So every now and then I'll make statements through it with that. Yes? Yeah, no, yeah, it's a paragraph with periods and commas and all of that. So uh, another way, and this is how it's stated in that, um, another way we can say this is there is but one and only one living and true God. That's a simple way to state that first line of the confession. Now, if you've spent any time at all studying, reading through any systematic theology books, 
what do they most often begin with? What's at the beginning of most systematic theology books? What's chapter one usually deal with? Okay, so some of them are going to go straight to the Bible. Our Confession of Faith does that. Uh, But most of them are going to start with arguments related to God in terms of his existence. Most systematic theology books, if you look, they deal with arguing for the existence of God up front. Um, They take on various forms. The most useful ones utilize the scriptures as foundational evidence for God's existence. Uh, they, they typically uh, examine the various arguments for the existence of God that have been made throughout the history of the church and generally seek to assume certain objections to God's existence within their argumentation. Um, these discussions are helpful. They do have some merit to them. Uh, we should uh, consider those things. Um, but the problem that arises in dwelling on these things too much is that one might begin to journey down a road that God himself never has. Uh, It might um, point us in a direction uh, that gets us off track from where the Bible leads us. In other words, let's consider how does the Bible itself begin? In the beginning, God. (laughs) Genesis 1.1. So what is assumed in chapter 1, verse 1 of the entire Bible? It's already assumed that God exists, correct? So we see this throughout the entirety of Scripture as well. The only instances in the Bible where God seems to approach the issue of giving proof for his existence are when statements are made in regards to the self-attestation of nature itself. Uh, in other words, we see uh, specifically Psalm 19.1. Paul makes the argument in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Um, you also see an argument from the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he's at the Areopagus. Um, but the basic argument is God exists. Just look around. Everything in nature gives testimony to his existence. Beyond that, you don't see, uh, you don't see any great um, effort being made by any of the biblical writers to prove God's existence. It's assumed all throughout the Bible. So, in essence, with relation to the doctrine of God, the confession begins in the same place as the Bible. The Lord our God is. So the first statement with regard to God in our confession of faith, unequivocally identifies in the words of the late Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there. He's there. He exists. It's already identified. He's there. He is. So God's existence is an issue that the confession addresses in a very simple manner, and it does so in agreement with the approach, it seems, that God himself takes in the Scriptures. So just making that statement, though, just saying the Lord our God is raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What is God? Who is God? Where is God? What does God do? How does God do it? And the confession as a whole seeks to answer these questions. And paragraph one in particular deals with the issue of what and who. God is. 
So let's look more deeply at this first statement. Let's read it again. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. Statements with regards to the singularity of God exist in several places throughout the scriptures. So I've listed on your sheet there a few scripture references. Perhaps most well known is the statement of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this is the beginning of what's known to Jewish people as the Shema. This is something that the Jews uh, recite daily. It's a, it's a Jewish prayer um, that is a reminder to the people of the singular nature of God. This is also uh, this is part of where um, we have a, a mandate for parents to teach their children, uh, to, um, to instruct them in the ways of, uh, of the Lord. So um, the Bible is undeniably monotheistic in nature, singularly focused on one God, denies polytheism, the belief that there are more than one God. And we see this time and time again. Uh, Jeremiah 10.10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. What a great verse. So again, we have an identification of uh, this great reality of God's singularity. First Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes, There is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and he puts those in quotations, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So Paul makes this argument for God's oneness or singularity. And he also, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, for they themselves report, this is other people outside of the Thessalonian church speaking of them, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so he's identifying that there is one God. He's living, he is true. So immediately the, uh, the confessional statement identifies a need for us to understand what is meant by the name Lord our God. It's a very important thing to identify. Um, a study of the names of God is in and of itself a huge undertaking. And it is full of incredible truths that uh, if you were to do that, um, it would heighten your uh, love and uh, for God and your devotion to God. Um, one of our children's Sunday school classes here spends the entire year looking at the names of God. It's a very wonderful thing. So what are some of the names of God that we know from the Bible? Jehovah. Okay, Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh, yep. Adonai, yep. What else? El Shaddai, yep. What are other ways that God is identified? Maybe not named specifically, but uh, ways that he's described. Okay, Redeemer, yep. Shepherd. King, Becky. The Lion of Judah, yep. 
creator, sustainer, all these. There's so many things. We could fill two pages with things that the Bible uses to describe God. Father, he describes uh, the caring, loving nature of God as a mother. All of these things um, identified in the scriptures um, related to God, his, his name, um, all pointing to what? What do these names of God point to in relation to God? His character, right? Who God is, his nature. John Calvin wrote, As God's essence is hidden and incomprehensible, his name just means his character so far as he has been pleased to make it known to us. In other words, God has identified himself in his names as a description of his character so that he can be known by us. So all of these names have meaning. Now, when we name uh, our children um, in our culture, most people aren't naming their children necessarily based on the meaning of that name. Uh, some do. We, we try to do that, but a lot of families don't. Um, in biblical culture, a name, the name someone had was everything. It identified either um, who they were in terms of um, their family and who they, were, um, who they were children of or grandchildren of. It identified their place within the culture. It identified their parents' hopes for them, their hopes and dreams of what they would become. Um, so what their character was, uh, was to be all tied up in their name. So as the people of Israel began to understand the names of God, what was very clearly being identified to them was the character of God. Uh, God has identified himself in his names as a description of his character so that we can know him. Um, In a broad sense, God's name is equal to all that the Bible and creation tells us about God. That's That's a huge statement. Everything that we know about God is identified in his name. In his uh, name, we say names plural, but really in his name specifically. Uh, This is the very reason why God's law includes the third commandment, commanding mankind not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, from Exodus 20 and verse 7, because to do so is to belittle or denigrate God himself. Right. So when we talk about using God's name in vain, if you remember a few months back when we looked at this on Sunday morning, we're not simply talking about um, using a curse word. Obviously, that is using the Lord's name in vain. But any time we um, we're using the Lord's name in any way that belittles him, when we speak falsely about him, when we give false witness with regards to who God is or what God has done, all of these are ways that we use the Lord's name in vain. When we pray with um, prayerless hearts and unfaithful, unbelieving hearts, all of these things. Why is that so serious to God? Because his name is the, um, is the essence of his character. It's so very important. It is a command that we not dishonor God's reputation either by words that speak of him in foolish or misleading ways or by actions that do not reflect his true character. So 
This is one of the reasons why um, the apostles specifically were so serious about confronting false teaching. Because foolish things that were untrue about God were being said. And it is using the Lord's name in vain. Um, Enough on that. Uh, I think we understand uh, what we mean by that. Now, the time that we have doesn't permit for us to do a full study of all the names of God throughout Scripture, but we should consider the most essential element of what the Bible teaches us as it relates to the singularity or the oneness of God. The Lord our God who is but one only living and true God. I want us to read uh, in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Now, notice that God identifies himself to Moses in three different ways when he's talking to him. In verse 14, he says, I am who I am. And then he reiterates his name once again, but this time he says, I am. And then in verse 15, he identifies himself as the Lord. So we have these three uh, monikers uh, that God has given to himself. So here we're dealing with the specific name of God. In other words, there are several names of God in the Bible that are generic. So we often say God, and that can refer to the one true and living God, or it can also refer to a false God that someone worships or something in nature that someone turns to as a God. So uh, there's that word, though, God, can be very generic in terms of usage. Uh, you also see this in the Arabic form, um, the name Allah. Well, Allah in Arabic simply means God. Well, um, Muslims use the term Allah because they, um, they think that it holds some weight of significance in terms of God's name, uh, but it's simply the Arabic word for God. So... Um, we see several forms of the generic name of God throughout the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments. But what God identifies when communicating his name to Moses is unique and personal. And initially it's addressed only to God's people. This, of course, is the name, um, if we write it out in letters, it's Y-H-W-H. No one is completely sure how it's to be pronounced, but uh, we've uh, pronounced it as Yahweh. Now, most English translations identify when the personal name of God, Yahweh, was used in the original text by capitalizing the word Lord or God in your Bible to distinguish it from the generic forms of the name of God. Um, So if you, I know the ESV does it, I think uh, NASB does it maybe. Um, King James did. Anytime you see the capitalization of the name Lord or God, it's when in the Hebrew writing uh, Yahweh was used. Um, the Jewish people, at, one, at a certain point, they decided the name of God was too holy to even be named, to even be mentioned. So they came up with other ways to speak of God. Uh, but So this is identifying that. Um, So we see here with Moses, God identifies himself as I am. And the word Yahweh therefore means he who is. So God's name itself is saying, I am, I exist, I'm here, I am God. 
Now, why is this important? Well, up until this point in Exodus 3, how have the Israelites of Moses' generation known anything about God at all? How? Okay, stories. It's all oral, right, at this point? Only through the oral stories of their forefathers. Now, how long have they been in captivity? Yeah, about 400 years, right? So during that time of captivity, at this point, when Moses encounters God, how many of the Israelites were living that had, um, had experienced God prior to their captivity in Egypt? Not a single one. God was silent for those 400 years. So who had any direct encounters in those times with God? Nobody. Not one of them. So the Bible tells us that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible. So before Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, God had not identified himself to Moses' generation. So they had no scriptures to derive their understanding of God from. Who he was, what he was up to, all of these things. All they knew about God was what had been told to them by their forefathers and had been transferred orally. It was only through those teachings of the forefathers that they knew anything. So it was a very legitimate question for Moses to ask God his name. Notice God doesn't crawl all over him and say, what are you... Why are you asking me this question? Um, He answers him, and he's very specific in answering him. God's response is equally fitting. I am God. There is no other. The same God you've heard about from your forefathers, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am that God. So he identifies himself as God, the God of creation, the God of of all uh, that exists. He also identifies himself as a very personal God, doesn't he? When he identifies, I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob, he makes known that he is their God. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I am their God and they are my people. So in the Bible, this form of God's name is used one way or another over 7,000 different times. And most often it's referring to God the Father, but interestingly and very, very importantly, sometimes also refers to Jesus Christ. Now, over and over again in the Old Testament, we see statements from or about God that highlight his godness. I am the Lord. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. On and on. Um, Theologian John Frame writes, this is a way of summarizing the main content of the Bible. God is Lord is the message of the Old Testament, and Jesus is Lord is the message of the New Testament. I think this is well stated. And accordingly, our confession of faith identifies God as the subject, Yahweh, who exists, who is, who is one, and there is no other. He is Lord. He is living. He is the one and only true God. So right out of the chute, right here at the very beginning of this uh of this chapter, of this paragraph, and really, um, since the whole first chapter is dealing with the Scriptures, when we actually get into dealing with the doctrine of that Scriptures, contained with the Scriptures, the writers of the Confession wanted to begin by identifying the God who is. I am who I am. I am the Lord. 
Uh, it's very, very important. And I, I think if we, if we think about that a bit and consider what it would have been to be an Israelite hearing this from Moses or being Moses and hearing this directly from God, to consider 400 years no one's heard from God. All they've known is what has been passed on to them. And they have these faint ideas of who God is and what God has done, but nothing real concrete about God existing, living, loving, um, caring for them, providing for them. Um, Now, certainly they had a faith that he was there and was doing these things, but uh, much like we see between the two Testaments, between the Old and New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene for so long, Um, God had been silent in terms of any revelation to the people. So this is where we begin our journey through the confession and through um, specifically dealing with the doctrine of God. The God who is the singular one God who says, I am Yahweh. Uh, Any uh, questions or thoughts? I know we've kind of sprinted through all of that, but I want to make sure that as we deal with each of these individual statements that we're able to get through them, we'll already be going slow enough. I don't want to get too bogged down. So um, any uh, any closing thoughts or questions or anything as we uh, conclude? Okay. Um, as I said, I've ordered, um, I ordered a few of these copies of the confession. They should be here this week, early next week. So if you want one of these, I'll have a few of those on the back table. I also ordered, does anyone have the green? Yes, the one Melissa is holding right there. I ordered 100 copies of those, so um, we'll just give those out. Um, if you don't have a confession, um, that's one you can take and write in and make notes in. It's real um, easy to do that. So I should have those soon as well. So um, my goal as we go along is that um, I will point out if there's some doctrine we're addressing that you're really wanting to dig into a little bit deeper, you want to think more about. Um, I want to point out some resources to you that would be helpful in doing that. Um, and, and so next week maybe we'll spend some time doing that for this uh, first uh, paragraph of the second chapter. Um, I want to be a help to you in that so you can do your own study. And that's kind of the goal of the confession is that these things are outlined and we can go from there and, and dig deeper. What we're trying to do, but still, again, it's not even uh, scratching the surface really of all that can be uh, discovered in all of it. So I will do that. And in time, Lord willing, I'm going to be taking all of my notes uh, through all of this. And every time we finish a chapter, I'll try and compile those and we can make little booklets and have those available so you can take those and work through them. So I know I told you from the history stuff and the introductory things we've talked about, I will do that with those. And uh, as we get through chapter two, I will with that as well. So I want to make all of this available as much as I can um, so that you can do your own study. And as new people come to the church and wonder what we believe, they'll be able to read through those things as well. So um, that's the goal. That's the plan.